Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Everybody. Red Army troops were going berserk as they zeroed in on Berlin in 1945. Dr. George Henneberg was horrified when he found that the Russians had broken in to his test laboratories at the Shearing chemical plant. Why was he so upset? The Russians were in there playing catch with the laboratory eggs that had been infected with the typhus bacteria. Who knows what might have happened had Henneberg not laid hold of a Russian colonel who ejected the soldiers and locked up the building. Those troops had no idea of the trouble that they could have let loose. But Solomon did, because God told him precisely what the price tag of infidelity would be. The Lord is so kind, isn't he? He spells it out, he warns so clearly, so we all understand our need for faithfulness. Nothing has changed. There is a New Testament book in which he calculates for us the high stakes of apostasy. It begins in Hebrews chapter 2 and then continues throughout the book. I remind us once again this morning that we are not on a playground, but a battleground. Welcome back to our study in 1 Kings. Verse 6, please. Here's how God posed the choice to King Solomon. He said, But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have placed before you, but you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut Israel off from the land which I had given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will expel from my sight. So Israel will become a saint and an object of derision among all peoples. Once again, the grammatical construction is conditional. If Solomon goes down the road of disobedience, then certain things are going to happen, and all of them are disastrous. But this sober warning has a gracious purpose. God wants Solomon to know the wages of his sin. 
And every choice we make today has some sort of consequence. Listen to how Blaise Pascal put it. He wrote, All things can be deadly to us, even the things made to serve us as in nature if we do not walk circumspectly. The least movement affects all nature. The entire sea changes because of a rock. Thus in grace, the least action affects everything by its consequences. Therefore, everything is important. In each action, we must look beyond the action at our past, present, and future state, and at others whom it affects, and see the relations of all those things, and then we should be very cautious. That's good counsel. Our actions affect not only us, but those around us. Now, in the Garden of Eden, the possibility of disobedience must have seemed remote. Think about it. Why would the man and woman that God had so wonderfully blessed ever choose to disobey him? What possible reason could there be for doing so? And yet it was acknowledged as a real possibility for God warned that in the day that you eat of it, that was a possibility that was tragically realized. Here with King Solomon, the possibility contemplated must also have seemed very remote. Even though the people of Israel had repeatedly done what Adam and Eve had done throughout their history. That's how sin is, my friends. It has the ability to blind us to everything that is around us. Now, this possibility is described here in three ways. And they are turning aside from following the Lord, not keeping his statutes and his commandments, and going and serving other gods and bowing down to them. These are the three aspects of abandoning the life of obedience to God that was required of those that he had so richly blessed. Basically, God warns Solomon that infidelity will bring the loss of turf, temple, and throne. The first involves the loss of land. The second involves the loss of the sanctuary. And the third will entail the loss of the kingship. Only a fool would flirt with infidelity concerning God. And yet, sometimes, every one of us does that. You may remember back in chapter 8, verse 46, that Solomon had acknowledged that there is no one at all who never sins. But we also recall that God can put away sin, as he did for David, and so Solomon's prayer had been that God would forgive. However, the connection between God's requirement in a word obedience and God's promise in a word blessing is fundamental. In the Garden of Eden, God's blessing, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, was closely connected with God's requirement. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. That teaches us that the blessing was God's free and unmerited gift, but the gift could only be enjoyed in obedience to God's requirement. 
It was the same at the beginning of Israel's life in the promised land. That land had been God's free and unmerited gift, but the blessing of enjoying life in that land could only be enjoyed in obedience. The challenging thing is, it is easy for us to get this completely backwards, thinking that God's gifts are earned by our obedience. Not so. Let's keep in mind that in the Garden of Eden, the the blessing came first. Furthermore, Israel was rescued from Egypt before being called to a life of obedience. That means that the land was God's free gift to them where they could live in obedience to him. And so we can say that obedience is a necessary response to God's grace. No one can receive God's grace by refusing to be obedient to him. In Christian terms, Jesus is our Savior by being our Lord. As I said earlier, such warnings to Christian believers are a major theme in the book of Hebrews when the author wrote this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. Wait, I thought you said in the past that if I am truly a believer, I'm eternally secure in God's hands. Yes. I don't believe this verse is speaking of relationship, but fellowship. I definitely think it's possible to fall away from God's fellowship, guidance, and help. But we have to look at this in the context with the rest of the scripture. Later on in Hebrews chapter 12, we are promised that the authenticity of our faith will be this. That those times that we do walk away and behave like a petulant child sticking our tongue out at God, we are promised that God as a good father will be faithful to discipline us. Before I was converted... It didn't bother me one bit to lie or be a selfish jerk. But now, if I do such things, well, let's just say that I know a celestial spanking is awaiting me for my good to get me back on the straight and narrow. All I'm saying is such warnings must be taken seriously. Christian assurance does not mean denying these warnings. These warnings are the very way in which the Lord keeps his own from the terrible consequences of refusing him. My personal theology is that the true believer will hear and heed these warnings and so will not ultimately fall. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said. That is why they shall never perish and no one can snatch them from my hand. So we see that in terms of the promises were significant, it was this. It was the inward integrity of the heart and the external conformity to God's standards. Now that first one was particularly characteristic of King David. Now we know he was anything but perfect. He was capable of some great sins. But he always had a repentant heart. And not only that, David never flirted with idolatry or an allegiance to a false god. So we are seeing this morning that at the height of Solomon's success, the Lord was challenging him to examine his own heart. 
This was a warning, not a threat. And it was addressed not only to Solomon, but to all who would follow him. At this point in his life, Solomon must have thought that that type of warning was completely unnecessary. How could a man who has built the glorious temple of God turn away to serve false gods? But this is exactly where Solomon is going to fail. In the words of one commentator, the temple is no sooner built than we hear of its inevitable end, and the empire is no sooner created than we hear of its inevitable destruction. Twenty years earlier, God had summoned Solomon to walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, as David your father did. And success had followed upon success, but at the halftime of his life, Solomon needed to know this. None of the basics have changed. The temple and dedication of the temple, that was a great accomplishment, but it had changed nothing about the fundamentals of his relationship with God. The Lord wanted Solomon to have no illusions that the game was over. Successful as he had been so far, there was still danger of defection. All of this will happen if Solomon and the people of Israel turn away and worship other gods. The Bible goes on to prophesy while people will say when they see Israel at the bitter end of their long road of idolatry. The if at the beginning of verse 6 sadly turns out to be a when. We will soon see that Solomon did not stay on the right road but instead chose to go another direction. So even as the Bible records the splendors of the Solomonic age, it is setting the stage for the show that even the greatest earthly glories are lost when people stop serving and worshiping God. Look at verse 8 with me. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by it will be appalled and hiss and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and this house? And they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods and worshipped and served them. For that reason, the Lord has brought all of this adversity on them. The question that cries out to be answered is not just why, but why has the Lord done this. For no one else could have taken away those blessings except God alone. The because of the answer will be clear. Now at the risk of spoiling a great story, we need to know that this is where the history we are reading is going to end. All of the warnings are going to be ignored. And then the inevitable is going to happen. And what is that? Galatians 6, 7 spells it out clearly when Paul wrote, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, they shall also reap. For the one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This is a gracious warning to us 
about where our own personal idols can lead us. Choose the wrong road in life, and it can end in such a disaster that even people outside of the church will know that we have taken the wrong turn. However attractive other gods may seem to us at the time, it doesn't matter. You may be thinking, I don't worship other gods. But while we have to remember that the gods of today aren't little stone figurines we put on our coffee table. They are things like money and material possessions, sex and physical pleasure. They are worthless gods like power and relational control. And if followed and worshipped, they will lead us to our destruction. And here's the danger and the warning that I give to all of us, including me, and it's this. The road to a life of deception begins with one tiny lie. The road to bankruptcy begins with just one unwise expenditure. The road to addiction begins with one foolish indulgence. You know the drill. A man is accused of doing something naughty or underhanded and immediately denies that it's what it really looks like. That woman who you saw me with that wasn't my wife, oh, we're just friends. That sexy text message I sent my secretary, that was just a bad joke. That strip club you saw me at, I was just stopping by to pick up my friend. Now, if confronted, that sin manager will use misrepresentation to convince everyone that if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's definitely not a duck. But before long, if we do not repent, our sins will be exposed and we will suffer the consequences of our wrong, wrong choices and people will see what has become of us. And not only that, if we do not eventually repent, that may be the proof that we've never been truly converted. And I understand that though very foolish, we may live as Christians in a season of rebellion that can last days or even months. Confession time. I got all your attention now. During my time living in Germany back in 1994, I completely lived in the flesh for probably about three months. I didn't go to church at all during that time. All I did was drink German beer and watch TV. But you know what? Nine years earlier in England in 1985, I got redeemed, regenerated, converted, saved, whatever nomenclature you want to use. And so God was true to his word, and I was drawn back into the fold. But if a person can live in that kind of sin without guilt or conviction... The Bible is clear. That person has not been converted, and they're eventually going to perish. For broad is the way that leads to destruction. And Jesus says, many are going to choose that road. Here's the thing, my beloved. Even though just about everybody thinks they're going to heaven, Jesus said that in comparison with all of mankind, it's actually a pretty small group that's going to walk through those pearly gates. 
So make no mistake, the Lord will bring disaster on those he has blessed, so they abandon him and lay hold on and worship any other type of God. And crazily, that is exactly what Solomon did. Now, you may be thinking, I wonder if Solomon is going to be in heaven. I believe so. Why? Just as in the life of David, there were periods of disobedience in Solomon's life that required confession and repentance. Do believers today ever sin? Well, of course we do. Sometimes Jesus' little sunbeams can be world-class smucks, especially if we've not had our first cup of coffee. The actions of God's people don't always match up with what they profess. But when believers do stumble, they should confess their sins and receive God's promised cleansing. And we know that's exactly what King David did. But did Solomon? I think he did. Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's a dark study on life lived apart from God. Solomon looks back over all of those wasted years and finds no joy in them, only futility, vanity, and a chasing after the wind. But I believe he had learned his lesson about, albeit the hard way, because he wraps up that book and his life with this advice at the end of the book. He says, Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. To me, this surely sounds like someone who has returned to the Lord and is trusting in him. Now, of course, the ultimate answer to whether Solomon is in heaven rests with God and not with us. Salvation is in the hands of God and God alone, because as the scripture says, God is the only one who can look at the heart. But I believe that Solomon did trust God, and in spite of his disobedience, was really a son of God. His writings clearly speak of a man who had a personal relationship with God and knew firsthand the folly of living apart from God. I assume that upon his death that Solomon went to paradise. Despite his failures and shortcomings, Solomon was saved by grace through faith, just as we are today. Here is another lesson, though, to learn from Solomon's choice. Everyone has a choice to make, and that choice is always before us. These disasters had not yet happened in Solomon's kingdom. However, at the height of the joy and the gladness, and for all the goodness that the Lord has shown to his people, the Lord gave this warning. What could possibly go wrong? Turning away from the God who has so richly blessed them. That is what could possibly go wrong. How kind of the Lord to issue to them and to us this warning. The purpose of the warning, of course, was to prevent that disaster. This is what could possibly go wrong, spelled out, so that it may not go wrong. But it did, as we will see. Just as it went wrong in the garden at the beginning, accounting for all the troubles in the world ever since. 
God had given the Jewish people his word and he expected them to obey it. And the king had to practice the law and set the example for others. It's tragic that after the death of Solomon, the nation divided and both kingdoms gradually declined until they were both destroyed. But before we pass judgment on David's royal line, let's consider this morning how many local churches, schools, denominational agencies, and other Christian ministries have abandoned the true faith and ceased to bring glory to God. We could honestly write Ichabod, which means the glory has departed on many an edifice where Christ was once honored and from which the gospel of Christ was sent out to a lost world. Verse 8 says, The people will say, Why has the king brought this kingdom to the, why has the Lord brought this kingdom to a pile of rubble? And that's precisely what happened. Now, the only Jew today who qualifies to sit on David's throne and can prove it from the genealogies is Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, son of God. And one day he's going to reign from David's throne. In the words of Habakkuk 2.14, which says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk might be that book in your Bible where the pages are still stuck together. But anyway, thank God that we have a Savior who always made the right choice in life. Always following the road less traveled all the way to the cross. Jesus had to make the same choice that we have to make. There are always two roads before him, forcing him to choose for or against the will of God. He had the choice to make when he was just a little boy and had to learn obedience. He had to make it again when he was attacked by the devil in the wilderness, facing all the temptations of hell. He had to make it again when he was with his father in the garden, wondering if there might be some alternative to the crucifixion. And yet, Jesus chose for God. He chose for God every moment of every day, even when it cost him his life. And because he is the only person who ever did choose for God all the time, every time, he was able to make perfect atonement for our sins. One time he even asked his enemies, Which one of you can convict me of any sin? Crickets. Not a word. Not a sound. Other than the shuffling of some feet and some diverted glances. Now Jesus is able to bring us all the way down the road of salvation. He himself is the road to God and the way to eternal life. If we trust him, his right choices, even when we make the wrong choice, are given to us. And when that choice comes to us again, as it does every day, and we are struggling to choose the right way, Jesus is there to keep us on the road less traveled, which is the road that leads to life. Verse 10, Now it came about at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, Hiram king of Tyre had supplied Solomon with cedar and juniper timber and gold, satisfying all his desire that King Solomon then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. So Hiram left Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, and they did not please him. And he said, What are these cities which you have given me, my brother? So they have been called the land of Kabul to this day. 
And Hiram sent to the king 120 talents of gold. Hiram, king of Tyre, had been previously David's friend, and David told him about his plans to build a temple. But it was not the plan that the Lord allowed David to carry out. However, after his death, Solomon also became Hiram's friend and contracted with Hiram to help build the temple. Hiram would send timber and workers to Solomon if he would pay the workers and provide Hiram with food in return for the timber. But Hiram did not like the cities that Solomon gave him. After looking them over, he called them Kabul, which sounds like a Hebrew word that means good for nothing. He didn't think the collateral was worth the investment he had made. These cities were Kabul, constituting a poor payment. Hiram had sent gold to Solomon and received Kabul in return. That statement was full of innuendo. <laughs> That's a uh, men's retreat joke. I don't know, but perhaps this episode shows a conniving side of Solomon. I also wonder if there might be a hint or a problem of the mention of Solomon's desire for gold. But apart from the fact that Solomon shouldn't have been so extravagant in building his palace, he certainly didn't have the right to give away 20 cities just to pay his debt. Why is that? Because all the land belonged to the Lord, and no land could be deeded away permanently, according to Leviticus 25.23. As a matter of fact, one purpose of the year of Jubilee was to make sure that any land that had been sold could return to the original owners so that no one tribe could be deprived of their inheritance. But Solomon was starting to behave like his Egyptian father-in-law who had wiped out an entire population of a Canaanite city and given the city to his daughter as a wedding gift, which you're about to look at. Nonetheless, we have just been reminded that the land in which these villages stood were God's gift to the people of Israel. And in the context of the warning of being cut off from the land will be the consequences of disobedience. And now we find Solomon giving land to the king of Tyre. Now, we can rarely imagine that all those Israelite inhabitants of those villages were certainly not pleased with the king's actions. Verse 15, please. Now, this is the account of the forced labor which Queen, King Solomon conscripted to build the house of the Lord in his own house, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. For Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and overthrown Gezer and burned it with fire and killed the Canaanites who lived in the city. He had given it as a dowry to his daughter Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer in the lower Beth Horon and Baalath and Tamar in the wilderness and land of Judah. And all the stored cities which Solomon had, that is, the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and everything that it pleased Solomon to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and all his land was under his rule. As I said, Gezer had come under Solomon's control in an unusual way. Now, a writer cannot resist giving us briefly this story, that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone and captured Giza, Gezer and burned it with fire, and then he killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon, it says, rebuilt Gezer. 
The Hebrew there emphasizes that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was the one who took the city of Gezer, and then he gave it to his daughter as a dowry. Now, the Hebrew term means a wedding gift, a present, or a sending away of the bride. The gift, therefore, was deliberately and directly connected to Pharaoh's daughter, becoming Solomon's wife. Now, I'm sure we are expected to remember what Moses said long ago about what a king over this people must be like. This is Deuteronomy 17:16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. That, that's, just, that's an epic warning. I have no doubt that Solomon's head was nodding like a dashboard bobblehead on a bumpy road. Yes, sir, I understand, sir. There will be no funny business as long as I'm on the throne, sir. You can count on me, sir. You know what? I'm sure he meant it. But when a neighboring king showed up at the city gate with several loads of goodies and his virgin daughter, Solomon's resolve melted like a bowl of ice cream in a microwave. Suddenly, the hard drive between his ears was wiped clean. Well, I'm sure he still remembered all his warnings. He just chose to ignore them. Listen to me. If we are serious about staving off seduction and keeping ourselves pure and out of trouble, we've got to ask and answer one hard question, which I'm going to close with. Are we willing to be honest and transparent about who we really are with the Lord? I'm not talking about who we portray ourselves to be on Facebook. I'm talking about the innermost part of us that only we and God knows about. My beloved, the time is short and the choice is serious. And if you are unsure this morning of entering heaven or have any questions about it, please see me or one of the other pastors after communion. Let us pray. Father, we live in a, an evil time. And we know that it is only by your grace that we stand. I pray, Father, that you would once again fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us a fresh desire as we have never had to follow you wholeheartedly. I don't want to be like Solomon, Lord. I don't want to have all these good things in my life and then turn away to other gods at the end. So I pray, Father, that you would just open our eyes to where we truly are with you. Not where we think we are or where we hope we are, but where we truly are. Your Holy Spirit can do that today. And we ask that he would. In Christ's name, amen.